This morning, verses 7 through 11. If you have a Bible, you can open that. Or if you don't have one, no big deal. Um, You'll find the, the passage that I'll be reading on your handout at the table. Let me read for us. Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Let me pray for us this morning. Father, your word's open to us this morning, so we pray that by the power of your Spirit that you would give us eyes to see and hearts to believe. Father, we pray that you would awaken us, not just physically this morning, but spiritually, to the glory of a new day with you. Um, Father, show us where um, we need to hear your voice in the gospel of your Son. Uh, Convict us where we need great conviction, and assure us where we need assurance. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Maybe you've read this passage before. The three words that stand out in the passage are the words ask and seek and knock. Ask and seek and knock. What do those three words have in common? Well, those three words are all action words. If you notice that, they're action words. They're words of get up and start doing something. Get up and get going. Ask, seek, and knock. Jesus doesn't tell you what to ask for. He doesn't tell you how to seek. He doesn't say what to do when you knock, because that's not the point. The point is that Jesus is confronting passivity on the part of his followers. He is confronting passivity on the part of his followers, especially as it relates to prayer. And the point is, in issuing those commands, is that we are not supposed to be passive in our relationship with God as recipients of his grace. The summer before my senior year in high school, I came home one early afternoon um, and found uh, a strange car parked deep in our driveway. And My sister had been out with a friend, and so I went to kind of take a peek in the the car, assuming that it was her friend's car, and I saw the back seat littered with old Milwaukee beer cans, empty. And so I thought, probably not her. Um, So I walked in the the door to the the kitchen, and as soon as I walked in, a man uh, in a ball cap and uh, gloves uh, with my sister's VCR underarm uh, cords dragging feet behind him. It was a hack job of a disconnection. You know, it comes down the stairs, and at that moment it dawns on me that I'm walking into a robbery in my own house, right? And so I did the very heroic thing. I asked the man very politely, what are you doing? To which he responds, son, I'm just borrowing some stuff. And so with my, my sister's VCR in hand, he walks right past me, and I hold the door open for him. <laughs> And he hustled into his car, and he jumped in, and he drove away. Now, I woke up enough at that point to to get the license plate number to take that down and eventually called the police. And when they asked what happened, I told them I tried to stand up to the man, not telling them that I actually held the door open for him as he left. I did reason later that it was my sister's stuff that didn't mean much to me. So, you know, I wasn't going to fight over that. Um, So they they eventually caught him. I had to go down and pick him out of a lineup later on. 
Um, but they say in the face of fear, say in the face of pressure, in the face of things of great consequence, matters of importance, that we have two dominant responses. What are they? Fight or flight, right? Fight or flight. You, you know, the point is that you either run towards or you run away. You, you move into action, you respond, you get up and do something. What you don't typically do is just stand there and politely hold the door open as the burglar walks right past you. It worked out really well for me in that situation. The matchup wasn't fair. He was eight feet tall and, you know, 300 pounds, and I was a junior in high school. But um, the Lord protected me on that day. Rarely, however, is passivity a compliment, right? Rarely is passivity a compliment, especially for a man. We don't think highly of men who shrink away, men who disengage, men who just stand there and do nothing to care for or to protect or to confront evil. You know, Christian teachers throughout church history have, have pointed out Adam's own passivity in the Garden of Eden, in the Garden of Eden, excuse me, as perhaps the first occasion of moral failure in all the Bible. So maybe you know the story. The um, story's in Genesis 3. And there the serpent tempts Eve. And Genesis 3 says this, Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, the woman took of the fruit, and she ate. You know, as men, we read that sometime, and jokingly and say stupid things like, well, don't you see, it was the woman's fault. The woman did it. And in fact, when, when God goes to confront Adam, that is exactly what Adam himself says. He says, oh Lord, this woman that you gave me, she's the one who did it. But do you notice in the story that after the temptation that God goes to Adam first? He goes to Adam first. Why is that? What was Adam doing as the scene unfolded, as, as Eve was being tempted? Listen to how verse 6 finishes. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her. And he ate. It's one of the most damning phrases in all the Bible. Adam was with her. Adam was with her, and you don't ever hear his voice. He did nothing. He watched passively as she ate. He held the door open, so to speak, politely, <laughs> as the serpent whittled away at the fortitude and the resolve of the woman that God had given him to love and to serve. Not a pretty picture, is it? There are other examples in, scriptures, uh, in the Scriptures as well. On two different occasions, Abraham allows a foreign king to believe that his wife is his sister. And the kings take Sarah into their household, and they are like surprised and disgusted to find out that Abraham has done this. And as pagan kings, they actually confront Abraham for his passivity, his refusal to act on behalf of his wife. In 2 Samuel 7, that's the, that's the detail of when, um, when David sins against Bathsheba and Uriah. Maybe you know the story. But the chapter starts off in a curious way. It really doesn't seem like maybe it's just an informational um, aspect. The chapter starts out by noting that in the spring of that year, when the kings were active with their armies in battle, what's David doing? You remember that? He stays behind in Jerusalem. In other words, when all the other kings were with their men, 
When they were active doing battle, David stays behind in Jerusalem and does nothing. And it's there in his leisure that the whole sickening ordeal with Bathsheba unfolds, culminating ultimately in the execution of Uriah, his friend. It's in his passivity that David becomes vulnerable to temptation. You know, we could go on. We could talk about cultural examples of passivity as well. We might note that 60 years ago, the most common designation for men and women living in our country was the word citizen. And now it's the word consumer. We could talk about the rise of fatherless households. Some of you know this very well, Mark Reedus being one of them. (laughs) That now a a full quarter of kids in our country will grow up without a man in their house, step or biological. A fourth. Uh, That's 25%. It's too early to do math this morning. It's 25%. It was 8% in 1960. It's a 300% rise in fatherless households. And that is is a minimum definition of what it means to be a dad right there. (laughs) That's not even accounting for all the fathers who physically live in the house, yet are emotionally and spiritually and mentally living in their offices or for their hobbies. You know, we could talk about the growth of pornography, what pornography means for passivity. Men and women can now find sexual satisfaction not only without the demands of a relationship, which was always somewhat of a possibility with prostitution throughout the ages, but now without even a real exchange of money or eye contact or conversation, not even having to get out of bed, put your clothes on and brush your teeth. The history and the scope of passivity proves that it is an enormous problem. It is an enormous problem, and especially among men. And we're not here this morning to sit and to solve that problem in the few minutes that we have left. I just want to wake you up to it, because I want you to see here that God is calling you out of your passivity. When God calls you to ask and to seek and to knock, he is calling you as a man out of your passivity and first and foremost in your relationship with him. First and foremost in the way that you relate to him in prayer. Ask. Seek. Knock. That is, don't stand there and do nothing Ask and seek and knock. Don't go through the motions. Go to Him. Exhaust yourself. Extend yourself to Him in prayer is what Jesus is challenging you to do as a man this morning. So that's the command. And it it really does, as you just sort of read it, doesn't it seem easy? I mean, Jesus makes it as uncomplicated as possible. He never says, look, when you pray, when you go to God, you need to be very careful that you only ask for these things. He doesn't limit that at all. He also doesn't say, look, you know, when you go to God, make sure that you never lose focus. You never lose focus in prayer. (laughs) That your mind never wanders away. He doesn't say that. He never conditions how you come to God. He says, do it. (laughs) Do it. So I want us to think just for a moment this morning why it's so hard. Why is it so hard? It sounds so easy. Why is it so hard? What is it that comes in between us and God that makes us reluctant to actually go to him and to pray? The quick answer is, well, Jesus doesn't say here specifically. 
But it is possible for us to read between the lines, I think, and make some pretty strong assumptions based on verses 8 through 11. So let's read those again together this morning. Verses 8 through 11. Jesus says, For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? What is Jesus saying here about what prevents us from being active with God in prayer? What I think he's saying is that our passivity in prayer is deeply related to our suspicion regarding the goodness of God. Our passivity in prayer is ultimately deeply related to our suspicion regarding the goodness of God. That is, that there is a gnawing uncertainty in us that God does not really love us like he says he does. There is a gnawing uncertainty in us that God does not really love us like he says he does. Now, I think you may not be there right now. You may not be able to connect that in yourself, but I think it's really important to at least acknowledge what he's saying here because I think if I asked you before we read this passage, what, why do you struggle to pray? Number one, we all do, okay? Why is it that you think that you struggle to pray, that you struggle to be active, that you struggle to ask and seek and to knock? Here's what I think you would say. We would hem and haul, and I think we would say something like, you know, I just lose focus. I just, you know, I just get too busy. I just get too busy. Well, I think that busyness really is a problem for us in life in general. It is a superficial excuse when it comes to why we don't pray more. If you're busy, what does that mean? It means that you're very active doing things that you deem extremely important, and so that can't be the cause of passivity in other areas. It can only be the consequence. Jesus says it's not busyness that's your problem. You've got to look deeper than that. There is something else going on inside your heart, whether you've ever recognized it or not. There's something else going on, and it is related to your uncertainty in your own heart regarding the love that God has for you. So what could that be? Let me give you a few possibilities this morning, okay? The first is shame. Shame. We use that word a lot. What what does shame mean? What does it mean? Shame is a feeling of, of inadequacy. Shame is a feeling of failure. Shame is a sense that we have to hide ourselves because we are embarrassed about who we really are. And you can see why shame would make us reluctant to pray. We feel like we've done things or we've become people who have put so much distance between ourselves and God that intimacy with Him is ultimately irreparable. (laughs) I can't go to Him because I'm not worthy to go to Him. Shame. Number two, anger. Anger. Men, have you ever considered that you have deep-seated anger towards God? That you have deep-seated anger towards Him? Maybe God took away someone that you loved. Like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, you did everything that you thought faithfulness required of you in a situation, and you feel cheated out of an outcome. 
Maybe life just hasn't turned out the way that you envisioned it. That God himself has not shown himself to be the God of your plans, and you're angry about it. Your your anger is not apparent. You don't feel it. It's not overt, certainly. But deep down, you are angry at what you perceive to be God's failure to love you well. Anger is a possibility. Maybe it's fear. You ever considered fear in your own heart towards God? You're scared about what God has for you. You're scared about what really offering yourself to God will mean for you. Let me give you a great example of this. <laughs> the rich young ruler, right? You've, do you remember the story? He comes, to, he comes to Jesus, and what does he ask? Very simple question. Uh, um, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He asks, he seeks, he knocks. And what does Jesus say in return? Sell everything you have, <laughs> give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. Does that scare anyone else? <laughs> I mean, if I, go, if I seek intimacy with God, if I go to him, what will he ask of me? What will I have to give up? What will he take away from me? Um, a, a dependent, intimate relationship with the Holy of Holies is a scary proposition, is it not? Number four, pride. Consider pride for a moment. Pride says, look, we, I, don't, look, I don't really need God until I really need him. <laughs> you ever feel that before? I don't really need God until I really need him. But for the most part, for the most part, um, as your days unfold, as your weeks unfold, you feel like you are sufficient on your own to take care of what you need. Life is a matter for you of effort and of outcome. Effort and consequence. And maybe you find yourself praying every once in a while to appease the guilt that you feel for not praying more, but ultimately... Ultimately, prayer feels like a waste of time to you. Real life is effort and it's consequence. There's also the matter of unbelief. Let's be honest for a moment. You ever feel like there's, you're not sure that anyone's ever listening at all? <laughs> no one's really out there listening to you at all. Belief is a struggle for you. Belief is a struggle for you. And that struggle is reflected in your struggle to pray. I mean, those are just a few possibilities outside or underneath the layer of, I'm just too busy. And I just want to ask you this morning, do you recognize yourself in any of them? Because I find myself in all of them. (laughs) Do you see yourself in any of those things? Because I find myself in all of them. And so here's the hope. And I want to frame the hope for you this morning in the form of a brief story that Mark tells in the gospel of his own story. In Mark 5, Jesus comes with his disciples to the country of Gerasenes, and immediately after he steps off the boat with his disciples, um, a man comes to him. Um, Mark says it's a man with an unclean spirit. Um, That is, uh, he has a spiritual malady inside of him that needs to be healed. He sees Jesus from far off, and he runs to Jesus and look, this man, you know, the other qualifier for Mark is, look, no, no one else could help this man. People from the villages had come. He lives in a graveyard alone, and no one could help him. He sees Jesus. He runs to Jesus. And this is what he says to Jesus. He says, Son of God, what do you have to do with me? Do not torment me. And Jesus responds, come out of him, you unclean spirit. And remember what happens next. Jesus asks the name of the demon, and the man says, My name is what? 
legion, for we, for we are many. Now, a legion in the Roman army was 5,000 soldiers. 5,000 soldiers. And the point being is that Jesus is not dealing with the man with one affliction, but with myriads. In that moment, Jesus is dealing with a man with armies of unclean spirits, and yet with a single word, with a single word, with a singular message addressed to everything unclean in that man, Jesus speaks. And legion, the myriads, all of the uncleanness, all of the demons, obey, and they leave the man. Many, 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 many points of brokenness in that man, and yet one word from Jesus, one message, was enough for every one of them. Now, what does that story have to do with ours? I am not sure about the complexity in your own heart regarding your struggle to seek God. And here's the point. You don't have to be either. The reasons are probably legion. And yet it is the simple word of Jesus here that is sufficient to exercise and to heal all of your passivity. It is the singular message, men, that God loves you. He really does. He is your heavenly Father. And as your heavenly Father, He only knows one thing. He knows only, only, only how to give you good gifts as His child. I want you to notice that when Jesus wants us to pray, it is not by threatening or by shaming or by coddling us that He animates our hearts. None of those things. It is by proclaiming to you again this morning the grace of God, the love of God, as your heavenly Father. Why? Because it is grace that covers shame. It is grace that ultimately melts away fear. It is grace that pacifies anger. It is grace that will undercut your pride. And it is grace that will pursue and that will um, soften a heart of unbelief. If you know how to give good gifts to your children, then how much more does your heavenly Father know how to give the things that are good for you? There are two particular things this morning about God's grace that I want you to see as we close in the passage. Two things that are important for us to recognize. And I want to do so in response to the question, the elephant in the room in the passage. Okay, here's the question. What if I ask and God doesn't give? What if I ask for healing? What if I ask for something for my children? What if I ask for something for my vocation and God does not give? What am I supposed to do with that? Let's look at Jesus' words with that that question in mind. Look again at verse 7 through 8. I know we've read them twice already. Look again. Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Men, what is the unconditional promise that Jesus gives here? What is the unconditional promise that He delivers for those who ask and seek and knock? It is this, that when you ask, God will answer you. He will answer you. He will give to you. That is to say, when you come to God, God Himself will never be passive with you. He will never be passive with you. 
Everyone who asks, what? Receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. That is, God will never hide himself. To the one who knocks, God will in fact open the door. He is at work. You cannot be ignored. He will always be responsive to you. When you come to him, you can count on him to act. And then number two, not only can you count on him to act, but you can count on him in his action to give you what is good. Now here's the hard part. I want you to notice that Jesus does not qualify what that good in your life might be. Okay, here's the part we like. Like, Jesus does not limit the range of what you can ask God for. That's the good, that's the fun part. But neither does he limit the range of what God can respond, what he can give you in return. And that's the hard part. The only limit that Jesus puts on what God, on how God can answer you, on how he opens the door, on what happens when you seek him, the only limit that he puts on it is that he can only give you what is good for you. That is the only possibility. The only limit to how God answers you is that he has to give you what is good for you. And so, men, it may be true that in asking God for something, listen, it may be true that in asking God for something, unknowingly, you are really asking him to give you a stone or a serpent. A request that he knows is not good. And a request upon which then his goodness can never deliver to you, except to give you fish and bread instead. Because that is what you need most. And of course, here's what I know. I know that all of this sounds really good in theory, doesn't it? Sounds like a good, you know, theoretical thing to land on today. But what could possibly generate in us enough faith to believe that whatever God does give us in the end is good for us. That is to say, what do we cling to? What do we cling to when we get an answer from God that seems to cut across this promise? That seems to cut across the promise that that everything that He gives us can only be good for us. There is one point in history where the passivity of God becomes the greatest assurance of his active goodness in your life. Let me say that again. There is one point in history where the passivity of God becomes the greatest assurance of his active goodness in your life. It is the point where God himself, adorned in your humanity, he stood there and and he did nothing. He let it happen. Isaiah says this, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is hundreds of years before Jesus, and so Isaiah is foretelling about the servant of God who will, by his own passive obedience unto death, bear the iniquities of you and me and account us as righteous in the sight of God. What Isaiah is saying and what Paul will say later on is that there was one transcendent moment in time, one transcendent moment in time at the cross when it looked as if God had provided a stone and a serpent to his very own son. And yet that stone and that serpent turned out to be fish and bread for all of his children 
instead. Brothers, it is that moment that we have to cling to when fear and anger and doubt take over. The passivity of Jesus Christ being led like a lamb to the slaughter so that God might forever make you a son and pour out his blessing upon you. It was in that moment that Jesus stepped in for you. It was in that moment that Jesus stepped in for me as his beloved bride to face our greatest enemies of sin and accusation and shame and death. And he did so in the very way that Adam failed to do so for his beloved bride in her moment of trial. And listen to this. The writer of Hebrews says, you ever wonder what Jesus is doing in heaven, by the way? Here's what the writer of Hebrews says. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is living in heaven. He lives in heaven to intercede for you. What is Jesus doing in heaven? He is asking, and he is seeking, and he is knocking for you. You know, when someone uh, is serious about something, we often say he lives for that, right? He lives for that. He lives for, uh, he lives for golf. He lives for college football. He lives for his work. He lives for his family. What is Jesus living for? Jesus is living to intercede for you, to ask and to seek and to knock for you. Go to him. Go to God. Ask and seek and knock and see what goodness God delivers to you upon his promise that he will never, he will never stand there and do nothing. He will act. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. We pray, Father, that the that your word would do its work in us, that your spirit would, would animate us, O oh Lord. Father, that you would help us to know what it is in us that makes us reluctant to believe that you love us. And we pray, God, that you would animate us to pray, to be men of activity, um, not men of hustle or, uh, or flurry, but, Lord, men who stop and who listen to you and then obey you as you've called us and as you lead us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Go to your tables.